Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, The Intentional Goodness of God. The intentional goodness of God, we fail to grasp that. Most of us understand what deism is, and we say we understand that's a heresy, and we're not deists. Deism, you remember, is the idea of God actually creating all things, but setting into motion much like a clockmaker, and then stepping back, and it just unwinds and takes care of itself. The deist is acknowledging God made it wonderfully. Isn't it great that it's taking care of itself? But the Bible knows nothing about that other than the part of God creating all things. God not only creates all things, he sustains all things. He not only sustains all things, he makes a distinction that we struggle to grasp. And the distinction that he makes is enormous and it's eternal and it begins now. And the distinction is between how he treats those who are his and how he treats those who are not. There is an intentional goodness of God toward those who are in Christ Jesus. A personal goodness. Years ago, there was a bank that referred to the idea, they came with the idea of a personal banker. They thought that all the people felt like they were getting lost as they came and went back and forth to the tellers. And they recognized that the people making deposits knew that a teller wasn't actually a banker. And so they came up with the idea of a personal banker, so that everybody was a sign that you knew who your personal banker was, even if you didn't have much money. God is far more than that. The Bible says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God is looking with intentional goodness to rain down blessings upon those who desire to join him in his most right God-centeredness. He's looking and bringing abundance and favor and abundance. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God is always doing that. The passage that we're going to look at today in 2 Samuel chapter 9 gives us a brief demonstration of King David doing something like that as a shadow and type of Christ. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 9, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? For Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, 
Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. And you shall eat at my table always. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son who was named Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table always. Now he was lame in both feet. You pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us now, that indeed you would enliven this, your living, active, eternal word. We ask, God, that you would grant each one of us a teachable spirit, not to simply gain additional information in the data stream, to be puffed up, but that we might repent and turn afresh toward you, letting go of sin and sinfulness. God, grant us a renewed vision of our position before and after Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. When you're reading scripture, you want to look and see where that applies to you and how it fits into you. You want to be looking for examples of Christ. All of scripture is virtually falling into two categories. They are showing something about the fall and its consequences or something about Christ and his glory and redemption again and again. As you read this passage, as you're reading in your devotions, and you read through this chapter, a Christian recognizes, I am Mephibosheth. I am Mephibosheth. That the God of the universe sought me out, wondering if he might bestow mercy upon yet another person in his great grace and radically changed my position. This happens after a number of events have already happened, this looking. David has sort of settled down here a little bit. There have been different things going on in his life. He was running from King Saul through, all, through most of 1 Samuel. He was simply trying to stay alive and worship God and do the best he could, but he had many, many threats on his life, directly and indirectly. He was running from Saul. Then he became king of Judah. Then he became king of all Israel. Then he established his capital in Jerusalem. Then he built a palace. Then he expanded the borders. And he made some treaties. Now, we come to chapter 9. Turning your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3 describes David's life and it describes your life. And we must again and again and again plead with the Holy Spirit to give us a fresh view of where we are. There is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. There are seasons in your life. David has been through a lot of different seasons. Now he is in a season, he is in a situation that he can really bless somebody. And he starts 
with the descendants of his good friend Jonathan, who are also the descendants, the man who tried to kill him, King Saul. A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, time to throw stones, time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. David has certainly demonstrated this and experienced this, and we read it ourselves today and see it. We see it also in the life of Christ, and we see it in our lives. And we want to be pleading with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. What season am I in that God might give us wisdom and his leading? Back in our text in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David remembers his covenant. What is his covenant? Well, it's back in 1 Samuel 20. He and Jonathan made a covenant together. And it became clearer and clearer to clearer to Jonathan that he was not going to become king. And he was very much okay with that. And he realized that David was going to become king. But they entered into a covenant. And in chapter 20, verse 15, we read this. Verse 14, this is Jonathan speaking to David. If I am still alive, will you not show me the kindness of the Lord? that I may not die. He's aware that his father is going to be removed in some fashion by death or otherwise, and that the kingdom is not going to come to him. It's going to go to David. And he's aware that some kings might respond differently. And so he's asking David, first, for his own life. They're very good friends. Verse 15, You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So we see that David remembers that covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. I remind you that the seventh commandment is about covenant-keeping. The word seven in Hebrew is the word oath. Sheva is both the word oath and the word seven in Hebrew. And so you shall not commit adultery as I do. You shall not break your oath. God is a covenant-keeping God. And David is covenant-keeping in this situation, and so he's thinking, who can I be helpful of? We need to be mindful of our covenants that we have entered into. We entered into covenant with God in conversion, that he would be our God and king. We entered into covenant with God's kingdom, the church, in church membership, that we would hold these people in particular regard in prayer, submitting ourselves to the elders, and we made a covenant of a particular nature in marriage. We need to remember our covenants. We need to review them and rejoice in them that God is like that. The Ten Commandments, you recall, are all about what God is like. And how do you know the Ten Commandments are good? You just simply need to put yourself in any one of them. And you realize how good they are. Put yourself as the object of any one of them. And you realize you don't want anybody messing with your stuff. The Eighth Commandment. You don't want anybody misrepresenting your word as false. The Ninth Commandment. You don't want anybody messing with your spouse. The Seventh Commandment. You want people to honor you and respect you appropriately when you exercise authority. The Fifth Commandment. When you put yourself in them, you see how right and perfect they are. But not everyone is like that. Look in Judges. This is King David trying to do the right thing. In Judges, we come across, this is a question that most people 
get wrong. If you ask somebody who's the first king in Israel, most everybody says King Saul. He's the first real king. He's the first official king. But the first king is the son of Gideon. His name is Abimelech. It's in Judges chapter 9. You remember Gideon. Well, Gideon is old and dies. In Judges chapter 9, we read this. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, Jerubal is another word, another name for Gideon. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, or Gideon, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and spoke to them, and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that seventy men, all the sons of Jerubal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative. They gave him seventy pieces of silver from the house of baal and with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers the sons of Gideon, 70 men on one stone. The son of Gideon, when he thought he had the opportunity to be king, immediately murdered all of his brothers. We see King Saul starting out really well, and then as soon as he begins to realize he's not going to have a dynasty, that in fact upon his death the kingdom is going to go over to David. He begins to resist, and his benign smile toward God becomes a savage snarl as he says, No, God, I will not have it your way. And then he fights tooth and nail to the grave with a dread result. But David is holding all things in the palm of his hand, desiring the glory of God. We ourselves must do that as well in all things that God gives us. David acts wisely, and yet at the same time, he remembers the sovereignty of God in biblical hope, the personal goodness of God, the attentiveness of God, and the covenant that he made with Jonathan. But here in verse 1, we see something else. He says, Is there not left anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so we see here a third-party beneficiary. He doesn't even know who it is, if there is anybody. So he's not thinking of a particular person in this case. He, that is, he's not thinking of the object. He's thinking of someone else that he loves so much that if there's anybody in their sphere, I want to be a blessing to them. And that's what God does in Christ. He loves Christ, and Christ has his eye on his people, and God blesses us through Christ. We are the third-party beneficiaries of God's love for Christ, God's desire to give greater glory to Christ. We are the third-party beneficiaries of that. And here we see a beautiful example of David bestowing blessing upon someone he's perhaps very likely not even met before. But then we see something very interesting about this chapter. This entire chapter is demonstrating two things. Listen to this carefully and read this chapter again this afternoon and this week. This chapter is demonstrating the remarkable distinction between Mephibosheth before and after. And so it begins telling us that he is the son of Jonathan, and therefore he's out of the line of the dynasty altogether. He's no relationship, no relationship to David. But then to make it clearer, he's a man that can't even provide for himself. He's crippled. He is not even able to provide for himself. He's crippled, and then the Holy Spirit says he's crippled in both feet. That's the opening bookend. This man can't even provide for himself. And what's the last line of this chapter? He was crippled in both feet. Before David comes to him and rains down the blessings that we're going to see in this chapter upon him, he could not do anything for himself. He was being taken care of by somebody else. And then God comes and rains down blessings upon him through King David. And he sits at King's day, King David's table always, it says in the Hebrew. Some translations say regularly. I'm not sure why they say that. The word in Hebrew is tamid. It means always. He's there every day. 
He's at the king's table every day. And the last line of the chapter, after all the blessings have been rained down upon him, all the land's been restored to him, and because he's crippled in both feet and cannot provide for himself, King David provides an army of servants to go out and to farm and husband the land and to bring in all the resources for him. So now he's a wealthy man. Now he's a favored man. And the last line, he's crippled in both feet. Few Christians, please hear this, few Christians grasp how crippled they are when they come to Christ. And very few grasp how crippled they are as they walk with Christ. It is all a matter of David being merciful to Mephibosheth from start to finish. And so it is with Christ. It is the mercy of Christ from start to finish. So David sends for him. Verse 7. David said to him, Do not fear. In the previous verse, 6, he comes in and he falls on his face before him. Well, first and foremost, there's two things here. Number one, it's the fifth commandment. It's the fifth commandment. What is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. The fifth commandment requires every person, every time, with every encounter, to recognize the person that they're addressing. Is this a superior? Is this a peer? Is this a subordinate? And when he comes into the king's presence, he recognizes this is a superior. And he falls on his face in front of him. He falls on his face in front of him. Now, there's also a legitimate concern here that he, may, he doesn't know why David has sent for him necessarily, and he could be in genuine fear. So David says to him, much the way an angel always says when he first appears to a human, verse 7, David said to him, do not fear. I could do you harm, but you don't need to fear me. That's what angels are saying. I could do you harm, but you don't need to fear me. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And there's that third-party beneficiary. He's saying, I loved your dad, and I'm going to be good to you as a result of it. And he will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. And so we see him here uh, delighting. He comes thinking, not knowing what to expect. And his knees are trembling, and he falls down before him. And at the judgment seat, it may be like that with you before God when you see him. Like John in the Revelation, you may fall down like a dead man before him. And the Lord Christ will say, do not fear, for as many as are in Christ. Do not fear. I love the work of Christ. Father says, I love the work of Christ. Christ says, I'm satisfied with the atonement I've done. You have nothing to fear from me. And only blessing is getting ready to come his way. And so he says to him the blessing. He says, I'm going to restore all the lands. And then he says, further. So there's grace there. First of all, I'm letting you live. I'm not, I'm not trying to execute you or anything like that. Even though your grandfather tried to kill me on numerous occasions, I'm going to let you live. That's grace right there. Great, great grace. And then he gives him these lands. What remarkable grace that is. He gives him large acreage. This is the acreage of the grandfather Saul. Would King Saul have had some land? He reigned for 40 years. It seems likely King Saul would have an estate. And David says, let's go secure that. He may have already inherited himself, David. Whatever it is, let's secure it. And every bit of it goes to him. Every square foot is going to come to you. You're going to be the master of all this land. That's great grace. And then he extends something far greater than that. He extends himself. It would be a happy day if Mephibosheth came into his presence and learned that you have nothing to fear from me. And by the way, I'm going to restore all the estate of your grandfather. God bless you. That would have been a happy day. He would have been singing the praises of the Almighty on his way home. But it's better than that. He says, I'm going to appoint an army of men to serve for you because you're crippled in both feet. You can't do anything. If you say, I'm going to appoint an army of men for Christians. That's the angels. That's the angels. I'm going to appoint an army of men to protect your land, to husband your land, to sow and reap your land, and bring you all the produce from it. And then it's going to get better than that. I'm going to give you myself. 
I'm inviting you to my table. And had he invited him once, it would be terrific. We call that a state banquet when somebody gets to dine with the head of government in that sense, but it isn't that. It's referred to three times in this chapter, and every time he makes reference to the fact that you're coming to my table, he says, Tamid, you're always going to be eating at my table. And then finally it says, like one of the king's sons. Who is this? It's Mephibosheth, crippled in both feet. We see in this passage vicissitudes of life. There are ups and downs. And we love reading about these things when they end well, especially when it's in a one chapter. This is real quick, and you can see it. And like, it's almost like the story of Joseph here in a sense. Only Joseph is 13 chapters, and this is just one. And a short one. We love reading that, and then we lose sight of that. That's where we are. Those who are in Christ are under the intentional goodness of God. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What does strongly support look like? Well, there's an example. I'm going to take care of you. You can't do much for yourself. You're crippled in both feet. But I'm going to take care of you. And Christ comes and accomplishes salvation perfectly. The phrase that we hear often so appropriately is that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And Christ accomplishes salvation, applies it to us, and then grants us his Holy Spirit, the leader of that great army, if you will, the power of that army of the angels, strengthening us, helping us, blessing us, defending us, providing the blessed Holy Spirit for us. And so we see here, in a very real sense, a reversal of banishment. Mephibosheth is just keeping a low profile far away from the king. I'm not bothering him. He's not bothering me. The king didn't even know he's alive for several years. This is not right after David becomes king. We know that because when David becomes king, Mephibosheth is five years old, and he mentions in here that he's got a son. So this is 15, 20 years later. He's just been keeping a low profile. And now David has sought him out and wonderfully provided for him and blessed him. And we just see the ups and downs, but it's a reversal from almost a type of banishment into the very presence of the king, the capital city, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem in heaven for us. And not just into the capital city, but at the table of the king. What does he say in response to this? Look at verse 8. Oh, if there's, a, if there's a verse in the Bible to underline, here's one. Verse 8. So he's, he's coming to him presence. He's thrown himself down on the ground. King David says, you have nothing to fear from me. He stands up. He hears that David is pouring down blessings upon him, and he drops to his face again. The word prostrate does not mean bow. It doesn't mean bow the head. It doesn't mean bow the waist. It means face to the ground. Hips to the ground. It doesn't mean like you see Muslims bending over with the hips up and the knees down. It doesn't mean that. Prostrate means flat out. Hips to the ground. That's why he came in like that. After hearing all these blessings, now he's overwhelmed. And he, once again, he drops to the ground. Verse 8. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard? A dead dog like me. He thoroughly understands his unworthiness. This is one of the most critical, essential, foundational components of Christianity and of conversion. This is, this is Luke 18, this is the publican standing off at a distance unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but beating his breast and crying out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Mephibosheth gets it. He understands his complete unworthiness in that. We sang today, look for a second here with me, look at this in your 
In the second hymn today, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, Henry Light wrote this in like 1910 in uh, Westminster Abbey. In 1910, they understood still who they were, at least in theology they did, in the Church of England. And so he wrote, Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, all these incredible things. Me, a sinner. And then he says, Who like me? Praise should sing. Henry Light gets it, that he's so undeserving of these blessings, of being ransomed, of healed, of restored, of forgiven, of brought into the family of God. And then he says out loud, Who like me, his praise should sing. The Presbyterian Church, USA, the United Methodist Church, most Episcopal churches, and almost all contemporary churches have changed that line. The celebration hymnal we use on Sunday night changed that line. Now, almost all hymnals say, Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. That's radically different than who, like me, his praise should sing. The understanding of being overwhelmed at the mercy of God. Our base unworthiness is central to the gospel of Christ and to the glory of God. John Bunyan is the one who says that God makes of us monuments and mirrors of his grace. And that's what Mephibosheth is here before David. He's a monument and a mirror of David's grace. And that's why the bookends are there and of the grace of God. That's why the bookends are there in chapter 9, beginning with he was crippled in both feet. He couldn't do anything for himself. And ending with he was crippled in both feet. We lose sight of that. But we should not. Look in your bulletin under the title of the sermon. This is something from Charles Spurgeon. He says, the unclean donkey is yourself. And he makes a reference to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is where you begin to give the particular laws of how God gets all the first fruits. God gets all the first fruits. The first animal, the first calf that comes out is to be sacrificed and given to God. First lamb that comes out of a womb, be sacrificed and given to God. The first child that comes out of a womb is to be redeemed. The child isn't, a substitute is given instead. And the same thing happens with a donkey. A donkey is an unclean animal. And so you don't sacrifice unclean animals. You don't sacrifice unclean. But everything belongs to God. And therefore the first one belongs to God. So what does God do? You must redeem it, Moses says. The firstborn donkey with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, you must kill the donkey by breaking its neck. He doesn't want it sacrificed. So you can substitute the sacrifice of a lamb, but if you don't sacrifice a lamb for it, you must kill the donkey. Every firstborn creature must be the Lord's, but since the donkey was unclean, it could not be presented in sacrifice to him. What then? Should it be allowed to go free from the universal law? By no means. God admits of no exceptions. The donkey is his due, but he will not accept it. He will not abate the claim, but yet he cannot be pleased with the unclean victim. No way of escape remained but redemption. The donkey must be saved by the substitution of a lamb in its place. Or if not redeemed, it must die. My soul, here is a lesson for you. That unclean donkey is yourself. You are justly the property of the Lord who made you and preserves you. But you are so sinful that God will not, cannot accept you. It has come to this, the Lamb of God must stand in your stead, or you must die eternally. Let all the world know of your gratitude to that spotless Lamb who has died for you and so redeemed you from the fatal curse of the law. Must it not sometimes have been a question with the Israelite as to which should die? The donkey or the lamb? Would not the man pause to estimate and compare the values of these animals? 
Assuredly, there was no comparison between the value of a sinful man and the spotless Lord Jesus. Yet the lamb dies, and the man, the donkey, is spared. On the next page, my soul admire the boundless love of God to you. Vile worms are brought with the blood of the Holy Lamb of God. Dust and ashes are redeemed with a price far above silver and gold. What a doom would have been mine had not plenteous redemption been found. The breaking of the neck of the donkey was but a momentary penalty. But who shall measure the eternal wrath to come to which no limit can be imagined? Inestimably dear is the glorious Lamb who has redeemed me from such a doom. Mephibosheth knows something of that. And we see this remarkable blessing. But we see in here three times, he says, that you're going to eat at my table. And we see, obviously, the parallel to Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says in verse 11, back in 2 Samuel 9, he says that you'll be treated as one of the king's sons, as one of the king's sons. This is indescribable, incomprehensible, in its change and transformation. And for us in Christ, it's the redemptive work of Christ. We often use the phrase, because the Bible uses the phrase, good news. But when you understand your condition prior to Christ, and your position and your condition in Christ, good news hardly seems like an appropriate term. It is glorious news. It is unfathomable news. It is glasses through which you see everything else in life. And praise the Almighty. That is what Mary does in Luke chapter 1 as she sings the praises of God, as she learns that she is to be the bearer of the Messiah. She understands her unworthiness and she understands how God exalts lowly things and how glorious he is. King David does as well in Psalm 107 as he makes emphasis on the reality that God turns things around 180 degrees. And that's what happened here in Mephibosheth's life. And it's what happens for those who are in Christ. It's not a little change, of course. It is 180 degrees different. James chapter 4 says this, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. And the Apostle Peter, writing under inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. What is our application from this? It is biblical hope. Our first and foremost application from this passage in 2 Samuel 9 is biblical hope. It's a shadow and type of our position in Christ. And this is us. Biblical hope of what is to come, of what is already in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of what is already in the accomplished work of Christ and in our position in Christ. And what lies before us, we need to believe this, we need to preach this, we need to rest in this, we need to walk in this. Biblical hope, it's glorious and it's forever, it's tamid, it's always. A second application is this, that we too, like David and like the Lord Christ, would be looking for fit objects of liberality and charity. Galatians chapter 6 says this, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. King David is doing good to all men as much as he possibly can to be a good king for the citizens. But there are some people that have the object of his eye. And the Holy Spirit says the family of God is like that. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to the household of faith. We're to be taking care of one another as true family. As I close, let me read Acts chapter 2, a portion you're familiar with, but now, perhaps with fresh eyes or fresh ears, hear this, as it describes how they were transformed, those who came into the kingdom, they were radically transformed from how they were before, after the day of Pentecost, those who were converted. Chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually Christians. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were swimming in the Bible. And to fellowship, 
They were loving one another and caring for one another. To the breaking of bread and to prayer, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and to faith-oriented, believing prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Mephibosheth is remembering a sense of awe every time one of those field workers comes with a basket of fruit and a check for all the fruit they sold. He's a sense of awe of awe. And every time he sits down at the king's table, every time he sits down at the king's table, he remembers, I'm crippled in both feet and can't even provide for myself. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, taking their meals together like Mephibosheth and David, like family does, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We need to remember the intentional goodness of our good God and of the extraordinary benefits of accomplished salvation in Christ. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Will you pray with me, please? God, we praise you and thank you for the clarity of your word. God, we thank you for how you do repeat these themes and messages again and again and again that we might be reminded and refreshed and clarified and informed and enlightened again and again and again. God, that each of us would see our spiritual crippledness. God, that we would come to understand with John MacArthur that if we could lose our salvation, we would have already. Thank you, God, that you came and held a blood-sealed pardon to us, directed us to look to the cross and to live, that you came and gave us a new heart, a living heart of flesh and not of stone. Maybe so, God, that as a result of this, we would go forward in biblical hope, renewed in our position in Christ of who we were and our unworthiness, who, like me, your praise should sing, but renewed in our biblical hope and wonder and awe. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. And such we are in Christ Jesus. Grant then, God, that we would bow low and worship and that we would walk by your Spirit as children of light. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We do have the opportunity tonight at 5 o'clock to gather again for the study of apologetics, uh, the study of truth, the study of the irrefutable truths of God and of the Word of God, as we study Luke in that light. And then the ladies meet this Tuesday at 10. Will you stand to receive the blessing of God for the people of God? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.